And now, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, on your behalf, I am very pleased to introduce today's special guest, the 36th Mayor of Calgary. When His Worship Nahid Nenshi was elected back in October 2010, he grabbed international headlines for all the right reasons. He was, and I would argue still is, young, tech savvy. <laughs> He's a Harvard-educated professor, a business professional, and a community leader. He has innovative ideas about how to make the city of Calgary a better place to live and to work. He ran a campaign based on ideas, and in office, he's been at the forefront of some of the most interesting, exciting, and dynamic urban policy initiatives anywhere around. Whether he's talking about community safety, poverty reduction, food policy, new and improved city facilities, transit, city planning, the mayor is fully invested in a better Calgary. He is an expert urban thinker, the lead author of Building Up, Making Canada's Cities Engines of Growth and Magnets of Development. When Mr. Nenshi's parents immigrated to Canada from Tanzania, they wisely chose Toronto, where their son was born. But some might say they got a little more wise pretty quickly and moved their young family to Canada, or sorry, to Calgary, where the mayor was raised. He has degrees from the University of Calgary and also from the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. Mayor Nenshi spent many years at the international consulting firm McKinsey & Company. He taught nonprofit management at Mount Royal University and all the while remained an active community volunteer and supporter of numerous community organizations, far too many to list here today. But beyond all of his accomplishments, he is a hardworking and creative person who remains dedicated to his city, his family, and his friends, and it is an honor to have him with us today. Now, before I relinquish the podium to you, not quite yet, I wanted to let everyone in our live audience today know that the mayor has very graciously agreed to take questions. Um, so following his remarks, we will have mics roaming. And if you have a question, please just raise your hand and someone will come to you. And now, I mean it without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming his worship to the Canadian Club. Well, thank you so much, uh, Alison. Uh, and I should say as well on her last day as president of the Canadian Club that one of the reasons I'm here is because of the incredible, marvelous leadership that Alison Lote has offered to this city and to this country for so many years. She is truly one of the great Canadians who does incredible things for this community. And I wanted to be here today, and I'm so excited that it's your last day as president to really be able to honor that. And uh, before, I, before I ask you all to honor Allison with me, I will tell you stuff she probably doesn't want anyone to know. So she chaired her last board meeting uh, of the Canadian Club this week. Uh, she submitted the first draft of her book this morning to the publisher. Oh, you're right, and she's getting married on Saturday <laughs> to the wonderful David Skok, who's here as well. It's an easy week for Allison. <laughs> Allison, thank you for everything. Thank you for your service to this community and to this country. Now, pour moi, c'est un grand plaisir d'être ici avec vous aujourd'hui, d'être ici avec vous encore, uh, et je remercie le Club Canadien de Toronto pour m'inviter ici. Mais aujourd'hui, je vous invite aussi. Je vous invite de partager notre histoire comme Canadien. Je vous invite de faire partie de l'énergie de Calgary. 
I'm here today to invite you all to share the story of our cities, to share the story of our country, to share all of our stories, and to invite you all to be part of the energy of my great city of Calgary. Now, I'm aware that I am a mayor speaking on a podium in central Canada, where perhaps mayors are not on podiums as much um, these days, <laughs> as in mugshots. Um, and I want to tell you I'm deeply disappointed. And I'm deeply disappointed because earlier this year, this is actually true, there was a surreptitiously recorded video with a camera phone of a bunch of people in Calgary talking about the city council and how they wanted to take over the city council and so on and so on and so on. And I thought that I had a great fine little scandal and that I had to go and be one-upped by others. <laughs> a little grumpy about the whole situation. I'd like to speak with you for a few minutes today, and I will tell you that I uh, originally ran for mayor, announced that I was running for mayor three years and three weeks ago. And for the last three years and three weeks, I've been speaking to a lot of groups, and I will tell you that I have started every single address by saying, I'm going to speak for a relatively short period of time so that we have a long time for dialogue, questions, uh, and an opportunity to spend some time together. So I have, in fact, said that uh, for three years and three weeks, and I have succeeded in actually doing that a grand total of zero times. Um, but I am going to try to do it. I actually have notes in front of me today, which is very uncommon, uh, but they are in front of me so that I can try and stick to time. My staff uh, have decided that they don't like that I speak without notes, which I normally do. Um, and they've determined that it's important that I speak with notes because it makes their lives much easier because they have an idea of what I'm going to say. That also never works. But I will tell you that a couple of weeks ago, I was speaking to a group of people, colleagues of mine who work at Calgary Transit. And it was a year-end thing, and I was speaking to them just very informally to say thank you for all your hard work this year. And as I went up to get on the podium, fellow who works with me thrust these notes into my hand and said, for God's sake, stick to the script. They've got a tight timeline. So I said, all right. So I went up to the front and uh, I said, picked up my notes and I said, I'd like to thank the Royal Canadian Legion for all the work you do with young people. <laughs> so to all of you, I'll say thanks for all your work with transit. Uh, it's been really good and I will tell you because this is funny. It actually says, it is a pleasure to be here in our nation's capital. My chief of staff is here, Chima. They may think of themselves that way. <laughs> Actually, that's way too small. They think of themselves as the capital of the world. Um, uh, so that uh, is not necessarily entirely true. And by the way, yes, my chief of staff is here today. Um, he will be writing personal checks uh, later. Um, <laughs> he tells me that his limit is $90. <laughs> And the joke that I wasn't supposed to tell in Toronto is that he did, in fact, write me a personal check for $90. It was to cover my Coke habit, uh, which in reality is a diet Coke habit, and we were fully out uh, at the office. See, I told you they wouldn't find that funny in Toronto. It's too soon, too soon, too soon, too close, too close, too close. Um, speaking of Toronto City Council, I do want to say thank you to Councillor Stintz for being here, and I also want to say thank you to Councillor Michael Thompson for being here. Uh, great leaders both, uh, great people who are doing amazing things for this community, and people who truly love this city. So thank you so much uh, for coming today.
my dad passed away a year ago this week. And when he passed away, I was writing a little obituary, a little story of his life. And dad led what was, in fact, a very ordinary life. He and mom came here in 1971. Mom was pregnant with me. I was born at St. Mike's Hospital a few blocks away from here. And they had a Canadian life. They worked hard. They never had a lot of money, but they worked hard. They worked hard professionally. They worked hard in service to the community, and they taught their kids that no matter how little you've got, there's someone else who has less. They taught us about service. They taught us about community. They raised two kids who went to university. They led a great Canadian life. And what was extraordinary for me, when Dad passed away, I sort of laughed, thinking, my poor Dad, would he ever have thought that the news of his passing would make the top of every newscast and the front page of every newspaper, even the Toronto Globe and Mail? I know I'm not supposed to call it that. with his ordinary life. And I received hundreds and hundreds of cards and letters after my dad passed, and people shared the stories of their families, and they shared the stories of their Canadian lives. And what became clear to me was that was ex what was extraordinary about dad's life was just how ordinary it was. Just how ordinary it was in this great country in our great province, in our great city. And the fact that that's an ordinary Canadian life is what is extraordinary about this country. The fact that we can actually say and mean, as I said the last time I was on this podium with you, that we managed to craft a society and a community where every single kid growing up in every single corner of our community, regardless of what they look like, or where they come from, or what their family looks like, or where they worship, or how much money they have, where every single kid growing up in every single corner of our communities has the chance to live an amazing life, an amazing Canadian life. We've created something here, something that we need to be proud of. And much of that promise of our nation, much of that promise that we strive hard to fulfill every single day starts in our communities. And in particular, it starts in our cities. And we have to think differently than we have thought in the past about our cities. Canada is indeed one of the most urban nations in the world. 80% of us live in cities. I've been speaking a little bit in Ontario the last couple of days, and I have a trivia question for you. I hope that doesn't break any of the rules of the Genteel Canadian Club, because I actually want you to yell out an answer to my trivia question. Think about Alberta. All the pictures in your mind of Alberta, extremely handsome mayors. <laughs> Three times, Calgary's sexiest man. Three times. I just, just thought I'd mention that. Everyone who's ever met me ever predicted that I would be a three-time champion of Calgary's sexiest man. None of what I just said is in any way true. But if you picture Alberta, you're probably thinking a little bit of mountains, and those mountains have horses and cows and endless fields of wheat uh, in the great Canadian prairie. So, with that in mind, 
tell me what percentage of the Alberta GDP is agriculture. Just yell out a number. 40%. What else? 2%. Well, that's a pretty big stretch. Anyone else? Come on, yell out a number. 5, 20, 15, 1.4. So you were very close. Um, we are, of course, a city, a country of cities, and our prosperity lives in those cities. Take, for example, if you don't mind me, just for a minute talking about politics. The Conservative government uh, that, we're, that we have now spent many, many years searching for its majority in Quebec. It did not find its majority in Quebec. It found its majority in Toronto and in Vancouver and in the downtowns and the suburbs of all of our major cities. Our federal government is, in fact, an urban federal government, and that's where that majority lives. The, the, the country has changed. But despite that, we still operate under the 1867 rules. We still operate as though we were an agrarian society where the communities in which people live don't even matter. I often use a line, I used it in Ottawa yesterday, and perhaps I shouldn't have used it in Ottawa, I don't think they took it very well. Um, but it is true, which is that I often try and remember what exactly it is that the federal government does. Defense, immigration, we've got a great minister uh, of immigration, he was one of my constituents. International stuff. There's probably something else in there, um, but I don't know what it is. I know they have a Department of Health that doesn't seem to actually operate any hospitals. Um, but what they do have is all the money. And I often say that if the federal government were to disappear while we were all sitting in this room, it would probably be a week or two before anyone noticed. I tried that line in Ottawa. They really didn't like it. <laughs> they pointed out that the room we were sitting in would disappear. Um, if your provincial government disappeared, well, you'd notice pretty quick if you were in school or in the hospital, but it might take you a couple of hours to actually feel any impact. If your municipal government disappeared while we were in this room, well, you'd have no police, you'd have no fire. You'd have no roads, you'd have no transit. You'd have no parks, you'd have no recreation. You'd have no arts, you'd have no culture. You'd have no clean water. In my city, you'd have no electricity. And you'd notice pretty quick, because you'd be dead. So how is it that the order of government that provides the services that keep people happy and healthy and safe every single day, every single minute of every single day, is the order of government that is, in fact, the most shackled in terms of financing and in terms of decision-making? We talk a lot, or we had talked a lot throughout the 2000s in Canada about the fiscal imbalance. But the fiscal imbalance is not an imbalance between regions or between provinces. The fiscal imbalance in this country is, in fact, an imbalance between the municipal order of government and other orders of government. Your municipal governments get eight cents of every tax dollar. And out of that eight cents, we provide police, fire, clean water, transit, roads, arts, culture, recreation, sport, all of those things that make life worth living. In Calgary, for example, my operating budget, my annual operating budget is $3 billion, of which about half, $1.5 billion, comes from property taxes, which is the only form of taxation to which we have access. It is, by the way, the single worst form of taxation imaginable. 
regressive, unfair, extremely difficult uh, to manage, extremely difficult to be sensitive to immediate changes in needs. But it's the only one we've got in Alberta. The rest of our budget, by the way, the rest of our revenue comes from things like utility fees, bus fares, and other user fees. Three billion a year. Calgarians send annually to the government of Alberta four billion a year more than we get back in all provincial government services. To the federal government, Calgarians send $10 billion a year more than we get back in all federal services. My operating budget is only $3 billion. Now, don't get me wrong. No Calgarian begrudges that. We understand that Rockyford, Alberta needs water treatment, or that Oyen, Alberta needs a hospital, and they cannot afford to do that using their own tax base. We understand that it is part of our job as Albertans and as Canadians to fund these great provincial and national programs and this great provincial and national experiment. We're even happy to fund whatever it is that the federal government does. We'd like to know what it is, but we're happy to fund it. But remember this. The reason that those taxpayers live in our cities is precisely because our cities are great places to live. And if we can't invest in those cities and make sure the roads work and the transit works and the clean water works and all those things that make life worth living in a city are there and in place, then that tax base disappears. People in Ontario are always extremely surprised when I point out to them that the Alberta oil sands are not, in fact, located in downtown Calgary. It's true. That Calgary tower, not actually an oil derrick. Though when I said that earlier today, my chief of staff pointed out that we actually are very good friends with the guy who owns the Calgary Tower. And he's very, very rich. And so Shima, my chief of staff, pointed out that maybe it is an oil derrick. He's just been siphoning it off all this time, but I don't think that's actually true. The oil sands are actually a two and a half hour flight from Calgary. They're about a three and a half hour flight from here. Slightly longer flight from Houston. It's a big country. So we have to ask ourselves, why are those great head office jobs in Calgary? Why aren't those jobs in Houston or Shanghai or Dubai or, God forbid, Toronto? And the simple reason is because Calgary is the place people want to live and Calgary is the place people want to invest. And every one of our cities needs to be strong to attract that capital and to attract that labor. So we really need to think about how that works. So when you see me, or Mayor McCallion, or Mayor Robertson, or Mayor Mandel, or Mayor Watson, going with our cap in hand to our provincial and federal government saying, please, sir, can I have a little bit more? Remember that we're not asking for a handout. We're asking for a small tax rebate of the money that the taxpayers in our cities pay to ensure that those taxpayers are still able to continue to pay money. Now, I have to tell you something. I'm about to say a sentence that you almost never, ever hear. And that was, in the last federal budget, the Federation of Canadian Municipalities and cities across this country were happy. Actually, never hear that. The federal government did three really important things in Budget 2013. They renewed the Building Canada Fund. They indexed the gas tax, and I cannot even begin to tell you how important that is, because that gives cities, it gives people like uh, Councillor Stintz chairing the Toronto Transit Commission a stable, long-term, predictable source of funding. It's unbelievably important. It's just a start, but it's unbelievably important. And they did something very unexpected. 
which is they announced a five-year commitment to housing. It's not enough money and it won't make much of a difference, but the fact is that this is the first time in many, many, many years that we've seen a federal government actually say there is a permanent role for the federal government in housing. It's a big deal. But we still have to work on two other things in a very big, in a very big way. I won't get into a lot of detail. You can ask about them in the question period if you want. But it's time for a conversation about a national transit strategy. We need to be able to talk together about what we're doing as a, as a country in transit. We remain the only industrialized country that does not have a national transit strategy, and we have to have one. And it's important for us now to have a little bit of policy entrepreneurship, as I call it, and really think hard about housing and think hard about what the roles of the private sector and the three orders of government are in providing housing. You know, Toronto community housing is, I believe, the largest landlord in the city. You know, cities have absolutely zero responsibility in housing. It's the provincial government's job. But if we don't provide that housing, we deal with the social disorder that that causes. So cities across this country have stepped into that role, and we're happy to step in. We do a good job of it, and it's important for us to do it. But we have to be operating in a policy framework that makes sense. So we have to work on that as well. Now, I want to, every single mayor you've ever seen at any single podium anywhere can just say, we need a better deal from the federal government, from the provincial governments, and it's true. And I don't want to belabor the point, but it is incredibly important. However, as the mayor of Calgary, being here in Toronto, I feel like we should spend a couple of minutes uh, talking about Canadian energy. We have had a huge, huge amount of rhetoric over the last couple of years about Canada's energy strategy, about Canada's energy industry. There's been an enormous amount of rhetoric, but you know what? There hasn't been any dialogue. And let's be very, very clear. It wasn't great banking regulation that saved us from 2008. It was Canadian energy. For better or for worse, Canadian energy is the cornerstone of Canadian prosperity. That's the hand we've been dealt. And it's up to us to figure out how best to play out that hand. And don't get me wrong. It is an amazing hand. We are extremely lucky to have that hand. We got a royal flush on the first deal. And let's not begrudge that. Let's figure out what we're going to do with that hand. And I submit to you today that this country needs what President Obama calls the all of the above energy strategy. Canadian energy needs access. Canadian energy must have access to the West Coast, to the East Coast, to the Gulf Coast. Canadian consumers must have access to Canadian energy. And of course, Canadian energy must include alternative sources, and those sources will become a bigger and bigger part of the portfolio. But for now, and for the near and midterm future, the lion's share is going to come from the Canadian oil sands. Let's learn to live with that, and let's learn to understand what that means for us. From a public policy perspective, we know that someday we will end up in a lower carbon world. It probably won't happen in our lifetimes. It probably won't happen in our kids' lifetimes. It may happen in our grandkids' lifetimes. It will certainly happen in our grandkids' grandkids' lifetimes. We're sitting on a resource that we know someday will decline in value. So I ask you, is it not the responsible public policy thing to do to monetize that resource to build a legacy for future generations, to make sure that future generations will be able to count on something when that natural resource is either gone or no longer of value? means if we're monetizing the resource, we have to save the money. 
or we have to invest it in building infrastructure, or we have to use it to bridge our economy. We can't do what governments have been doing, which is burn the furniture to heat the house, and use the money from that to manage our daily operational needs. We have to get beyond that. But I want to be very clear about something. When we talk about Keystone XL, we're talking about a pipe that's a meter wide. It is deeply, deeply, deeply foolish to make a one meter wide pipeline bear all the sins of the carbon economy. Getting rid of Keystone XL will not end carbon production. It will not take us to a low carbon world. It will ensure that we have given away prosperity that deserves to be Canadian prosperity and prosperity for future generations of Canada. We've allowed somehow the oil sands that account for less than 1% of global greenhouse emissions to be the poster child for the sins of the carbon economy, and we've got to stop it. And we've got to figure out ways that we change that perception and realize how we can all, as Canadians, share in the prosperity of Canadian energy. We're ready to have that conversation. I think people across this country are ready to have that conversation, and together we will figure out how we utilize that hand that we've been dealt, how we play it out to make sure that we play it out for the benefit of all future generations. So no joke, you're going to hear the Mayor of Calgary talk about energy. And you'll see behind me that slogan, Calgary, be part of the energy. But it's not just about carbon atoms, that energy. It's about the energy of a great place. And that's one of the reasons I'm here in Ontario at the moment. To tell you a little bit more about Calgary to tell you a little bit more about the opportunities that we have in that city. And I'm not going to be the salesman who stands here and gives you the millions and millions of stats, though I do have many, um, because I think you'll get that. But I want to tell you that energy of Calgary. It's not about the carbon atoms, it's about the energy and electricity in the air in our country, the fact in our city, the fact that we have a place where people can do and be anything. So I'm just giving you a couple of fun stats. Last year, Calgary was responsible for 14% of all jobs created in Canada. That's a city with less than 5% of the population. We anticipate that we will have a demand for workers by more of more than 200,000 new jobs this decade. We are one of the very few places in the world that is not concerned as much about unemployment as we are about labor productivity and labor crunch. As you know, we have the highest, second, highest second highest number and highest concentration of head offices in the country. 5,300 tech startups alone in Calgary at this moment. And yes, every single energy company has their head office there, but we also have the head offices of many, many important firms in places like transportation and logistics. Canadian Pacific is headquartered there. The best airline in Canada, WestJet is located, of course, in Calgary. And I got to tell you, being here in Toronto, I'm missing two important things in Calgary. One, we've just declared a state of emergency and there's horrible flooding and I have to go home. I'd rather not think about it until I finish speaking. But the second thing I'm missing is the launch today of Canada's newest airline, WestJet Encore. We are hugely, hugely proud of WestJet Encore. Uh, and in particular, we are hugely proud that the planes they're taking delivery of today were built in Toronto. Uh, and that is a great way of talking about Canadian prosperity. Uh, and we're super happy about that. So what am I talking about here when I talk about this energy? 
I probably shouldn't tell you any more about that Sexiest Man Award, but for some reason I can't stop talking about it. Um, but it really does tell you that there is a shortage of a number of professions in Calgary, particularly optometrists. Now, but I will tell you that it's not just about the economic vibrancy. A lot of places are economically vibrant. It's about what is possible. It's about the possibility. And I've, you've heard me say probably before, because I've said it a million billion times, that our city is a true meritocracy. Calgary is a place where nobody cares what your last name is, or where you went to school, or who your daddy was. We care about you. We care about your ideas, your willingness to work hard to make those ideas real, and what you bring to the table. We care about having a great quality of life. Our official vision actually says Calgary needs to be a great place to make a living and a great place to make a life. And I'm not going to go on and on about our 3,500 restaurants and the amazing chefs and Jean Grand Maitre, the frickin' genius who runs the Alberta Ballet um, and the grazing works he's done with people like Sarah McLaughlin, Elton John, and Katie Lang. Um, but what I will tell you is if you haven't been to Calgary lately, come and experience that feeling in the air of what is happening in the arts, in culture. Come in two weeks and watch me wear a cowboy hat and ride a horse at the head of the Calgary Stampede. If you've never experienced that, experience that. If you can't make it for the Stampede, come two weeks later for the Calgary Folk Music Festival, called by the Groban Mail, one of the seven musical wonders of the world. And join me and 25,000 of my neighbors barefoot, sitting on a tarp, on an island in the middle of the city, surrounded by spires of prosperity in people's homes. And join me as I did a couple years ago in listening to Katie Lang singing Hallelujah. Even though I love Leonard Cohen, I wanted to pass a bylaw saying she's the only one allowed to sing that song ever again. As 25,000 of our neighbors hold our breath. And a bunch of little kids do as they do every night at the Calgary Folk Festival bring homemade lanterns, and walk through the crowd to light us all our way home. Don't take my word for it. One of the best things for Canada, one of the best things for Canada is that we have great cities around this country that rank as the very best in the world. The Economist this year for the fifth year in a row ranked the best cities in the world in which to live. Of the top five cities, three were Canadian cities. Vancouver, Calgary, and I um, um, can't remember. There was another one in there somewhere. Uh, they were fourth, we were fifth, but we'll be ahead of them next year. Doesn't mean we're perfect. We got a lot of work to do. In our city, we got to build even better neighborhoods. We got to give people even better mobility choices. I continue to work hard on building even better citizen-centered government. And of course, we continue to work on even better citizenship. Very briefly, that's why I wear this number three. The number three that I'm wearing stands for three things for Calgary. A simple program where we reach out to every citizen in Calgary and say, this year and every year, do three things for your community. Whether they're big, whether they're small, it doesn't matter. But it's about taking into our own hands, our own minds, and our own hearts the ability to make our own communities better. And Calgarians have responded. Tens of thousands, from little kids to seniors, have signed up. And I tell you, a lot of neighbors' walks are getting shoveled. A lot of block parties are happening. A lot of toothbrushes are being donated to the Alberta Children's Hospital so that when you have to take your kid to the emergency room in the middle of the night and you're terrified, you get a chance to brush your teeth and feel a little more human and know that someone else in the community is thinking of you.
That's citizenship. That's what builds our communities. I'm getting my time note, as I always do, saying, get off the stage, give them time for questions. But I can't stop without telling you one last story. One of the great things about my job in the last two years is I've been able to go to the 100th anniversary of many things. 1912 was the height of Calgary's first boom. The 100th anniversary of the Calgary Public Library, the 100th anniversary of the Calgary Stampede, that was something else. The 100th anniversary of Calgary's first playground, of Calgary's first university. But my favorite 100th anniversary was the 100th anniversary of a school called Connaught School, which is located in downtown Calgary. It's called Connaught School because it's named after the former Governor General of Canada, the Duke of Connaught, the grandson of Queen Victoria. He had come to open the first Calgary Stampede. By the way, typical of the federal government, he was late, he missed the parade, we had to throw another parade for him. Something's never changed. But I was standing there in front of those kids at Connaught School in that elementary school gym. They were wearing matching t-shirts celebrating the 100th anniversary of their school. 240 of them. They came from 61 different countries. They spoke 42 different languages at home. And remember, this is downtown Calgary. This is often the first stop for people who are new to this country. So that day, I talked to a lot of these kids. And I talked to their parents, or more commonly, their grandparents or their uncles and aunts, because they didn't have any parents. And I asked them their stories. And that day, I heard horrible things. Stories of war, of depravity, of poverty, of violence so horrific you can't imagine one human being doing it to another, let alone in front of a child. And it would have been so easy that day. It would have been so easy to lose all hope. It would have been so easy to feel despair for our world and for what human beings are capable of doing to one another. But you know what I didn't? Because standing there in that little elementary school gym in front of those kids in their matching t-shirts, I realized something. I knew something with absolute certainty. I knew something to be true beyond anything else. And that was regardless of what had happened to these kids, regardless of what wrath some vengeful God had visited upon them and their families, they had one stroke of unbelievable luck. And that stroke of unbelievable luck was even though they came here with nothing, even though only the lucky ones had their parents, the unlucky ones didn't, that stroke of enormous luck was that they ended up here. They ended up in Canada, they ended up in Alberta, they ended up in Calgary, they ended up at Connaught School. They ended up in a community that had a stake in their success. They ended up in a place where the community was going to catch them if they stumbled and make sure that they're not going to stumble again. And I knew at that moment the one thing to be true is that every one of those kids had the opportunity to live a great Canadian life. That's the promise of our country. That's the promise of our communities. It's a promise I fight for every single day, and I hope every single one of you fights for every single day. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much.
your worship. Um, and as I, I love I when she calls me that. I had to think when about it. When I was it. your boss 15 years <laughs> ago, you never called me your worship. Correct. Mm. <laughs> never even called me boss. Um, the, the mayor has agreed to take a couple of questions. So if anyone has one, if they could please raise their hand and someone will come around with the mic. Just here on the right-hand side, please. And while you're right. getting ready, I'll just ask if you could please introduce yourself yes. and uh, form your question in the phrase of a question, me? please. Yeah. Um, your Worship, my name is Cam Rathi. I'm a special advisor in India for Blake Castle Graydon, formerly known as Blake's, the best law firm in Canada in the world. Uh, <laughs> you and I have a common bond through uh, Goldie Hire, of course. I just want to introduce again. Uh, you are an icon for immigrants, minorities, uh, middle class Canadians, and all of Canada. My question is this, very simple, and one very simple question. If Barack Obama can become president of the U.S., why not Nahid Nanshi, Prime Minister of Canada? Oh, well, I'd have to figure out what that guy does first. Um, that's very kind. Thank you very much. Um, you know, um, I got to tell you something. The swiftest way to irritate me is to use the phrase senior level of government. hate that. Um, because, in fact, I got to tell you, I have the best political job in the country. There's something incredibly special about being a mayor. Remember that mayor is the only major political job in Canada where you're not elected in a ward, you're not elected behind a political party of any kind. Every single person who votes gets your name on the ballot, and they get to say whether they like you or they don't like you. And as a result, something amazing happens. And I know Karen Stintz and Michael Thompson will agree with me on this, even as city councillors. I've been in this job for three years. People always ask me, do you like your job? Sometimes I hate my job, sometimes I love my job, but I will tell you the one thing I love above all. I get to wake up every single morning, and I get to know every single day that even if it's just for a second, I get to hope, hold the hopes and dreams and fears of people for their community in my hand. That's pretty heady. It's kind of overwhelming, but it's also incredibly exhilarating. So why in the world would I trade that in for a job where I don't know what that guy even does? <laughs> thank you. Uh, next question, uh, just in the back, thank you. Your Worship, my name is Lee Rose and I work for Civic Action and I'm from the great city of Mississauga. Um, but my question to you is your term in office, what would you say is your biggest failure to date? And what are you doing about it? Well, uh, it's easy to answer my biggest failure to date. Uh, when I went into office, I went in with 12 key platforms. Um, one of them, I didn't have the power to implement. It required the provincial government to implement. Um, it's about campaign finance reform and free and fair elections. And the provincial government balked, so I did fail on that. But one of them I did not succeed on on my own council, and that was the legalization of secondary suites across the city to make sure that people who live in these now illegal suites deserve the benefit of the law that the rest of us get, um, and that we can legalize and enforce safety in these suites. I failed by one vote. Um, and that conversation continues uh, to be had uh, throughout Calgary. We remain the last major city in Canada not to take this step. It's the right thing to do morally, ethically, and legally, uh, and, I can, and I hope to continue fighting for it. People get to decide whether they want, still want me as mayor after this fall. Uh, but if they do, uh, that is something that I will continue to fight for. Thank you. Just here on the right. 
Hi, I'm Kathleen McLaughlin, and I'm a partner at McKinsey & Company. Uh, what do you see? Are you here to give me a performance evaluation? Yes, and I, yes, we're going to rehash 15, no. <laughs> the last one you gave me, I don't know if it was that good. Anyway, no, go ahead, good. Kathleen. Um, what do you see as the role of the mayor in creating a vision for the city? And what are some specific steps that you've taken in your tenure to do that? So I was very well trained um, in strategy in my life. I can't imagine where that happened. Uh, and so, in fact, I think it's really important. I think that it's incredibly important as the top of the organization. You know, mayors don't have that much power. It's a legislative role, not an executive role. So even though everyone voted for you, you're just one vote on council. And in Calgary, that's it. I don't have anyone who reports to me except for my own office staff. I don't have any um, cabinet ministries or anything that come up to me. But what I do have is the power, as I said, to embody the hopes and dreams of people. And in fact, at working as a volunteer long before I was a politician, I worked on a process to develop a 100-year vision for Calgary. 18,000 Calgarians participated in that process called Imagine Calgary. That's where a great place to make a living, a great place to make a life comes from. It's part of it. And truth be told, my job as a volunteer was to go through all 18,000 uh, of those responses and try and synthesize them into something. And I probably didn't get to all 18,000. And the reason was because there was remarkable unanimity in what people were saying. It didn't matter if you were young or old, urban or suburban, um, whether you self-describe yourself as left or right, as if anybody self-describes themselves as left or right. It didn't matter. You all said the same thing. What kind of a neighborhood do I want to live in? I want to live in a neighborhood where I can walk to the store. I want to live in a neighborhood where my kids can walk to school. I want to live in a neighborhood where different kinds of people live so my kids can go to school with people who aren't exactly the same as us. I want to live in a neighborhood where I feel safe. I want to live in a neighborhood where my parents and grandparents can live nearby so I can get cheap babysitting. These are basic human things. And the question I had to ask myself is, if that's clear that that's what the market is demanding, then why aren't we building those neighborhoods? Why are we focused on something different? Where's the market failure here? And so to me, that's what I really focus on. We've got a great vision for the city. We've got a great strategy and plan on how to achieve it. And I have to systematically remove the barriers that are preventing my 20,000 colleagues at the city of Calgary from actually being able to build that city. We have to move to a world and organizational change. You know, I thought I knew something about it. I've never tried it in a 3 billion, 20,000 employee organization before. But it means under all of my colleagues asking themselves every single day, how is what I am doing right now making it better for somebody to live here? I serve the citizen. I don't serve the bureaucracy and I don't serve the process. And that's a big mental shift. So my job nowadays is talking about the vision, sure, and embodying the vision as best I can, but my job really is systematically removing the barriers within the organization to help the community achieve that vision. Thank you very much. And unfortunately, we do not have any more time for questions. Those were wonderful questions and wonderful answers. There wasn't a single one about the Sexiest Man Award. Well, I think we all, we all covered that one off. <laughs> uh, thank you, and I'm going to invite my colleague Jen Sloan to the, to the podium to formally thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, are, are you suffering from Mayor Envy? Wow, what a breath of fresh air.
I'm Jennifer Sloan from Target Canada and a Vice President of the Canadian Club, and it gives me a great pleasure to thank uh, Mayor Nenshi. Thank you so much for joining us today, this being your second appearance at the Canadian Club of Toronto. And not only are you a passionate advocate for Calgary, you're also a strong proponent for all Canadian cities and Canadian prosperity. I suppose it should come as no surprise that you consistently uh, enjoy great approval raisings. Along with your three years in a row, sexiest man of Calgary, and also the most beloved person in Calgary, three years in a row. Well, it's easy to see why after today. Thank you. On behalf of our guests here today, we'd like to thank you for your insights you shared about the importance of a stronger urban planning, a national transportation plan, energy, and building livable neighborhoods. And so as you prepare to head home, and you prepare your re-election bid, we wish, wish you much success. And please note, you are always welcome here at the Canadian Club of Toronto podium. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jen, and thank you very much, Your Worship. We'll keep practicing that. Um, that was a wonderful and inspiring lunch, and on behalf of all of us at the Canadian Club, we wanted to thank all of you for joining us. We wish you a very wonderful summer, and we look forward to seeing you back at the club in the fall. Today is adjourned. Thank you. Thank you.